0: Hello and this is FinTech Insider News. Today, strong customer authentication finally comes in force in the UK, but many aren't ready. Lunar raises more funding and announces a crypto product. And HSBC buys land in the metaverse? All this and more on today's show. Welcome to episode 612 of FinTech Insider. My name is Guerra. And I'm joined on FinTech Insider News by my colleague Sim Rai, senior customer strategist at Love FS. Really good to have you, Sim. Uh, this is our first co-hosting gig. Um, tell us a little bit about uh, how how are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing great, thanks. Great to be here with you for our first time. How are you doing? Doing okay. Um I feel like like everyone in the office had COVID last week, I think. Um, I hope did you did you manage to, to get out of to, to stay away from that? I did I escaped it probably
1: because I had it over Christmas still immune I reckon
0: Um, yeah all right well and of course we're always joined by some very special guests first up making a very welcome return we've got Roger Diath the UK country manager at TrueLayer. welcome back to the show Roger really really great to have a payment expert on the show this week uh, because lots has been going on in the space Uh, how are you doing?
2: Yeah, really good. Thank you. Um, As I said, I'm actually, we're now trying to get back into the office in for real, uh, which is quite exciting. Um, And um, yeah, a lot's happening in the payment space. It feels like that's always the way, but uh, really pleased to be back on the show. Thanks for the invite.
0: And also we have a FinTech Insider debut from Jimmy Fong, the CCO at Cion. Uh, So welcome, Jimmy. How are you? Can you tell the listeners a little bit about Cion?
3: Yeah, sure thing. Uh, pleasure to be on. Thanks for having me. Um, Ceyon, uh we are a fraud-fighting online SaaS startup. Um, so, series day back in March and uh, just approaching uh, our kind of next funding round, which will be out publicly in a, a couple of weeks there.
0: Nice. Well, I can't wait to report on that when it, when it does happen. Uh, so, thanks so much for coming along. And with that, let's get into the news. Online retailers warned of lost sales as SCA comes into effect. So SCA is strong customer authentication, uh, is being called the biggest change to payments since chip and pin rolled out 16 years ago. Initially scheduled for introduction on the 14th of September 2019, the rules which demand a two-step verification process for all online purchases over 30 euro is coming into effect in the UK on Monday. The FCA prompted early enforcement by issuers throughout February, which resulted in as much as 75% tr- payment traffic receiving soft decline and being sent for further authentication checks. According to Barclays data, 43,000 transactions a day worth £3.64 million were declined at the point of sale in February, and 1% of customers noticed an increase in declined payments. Merchants that aren't ready for the rollout will continue to lose out on sales. And according to Adyen, just 44% of businesses are actually prepared for these new rules. I'm going to come to you, Roger. Um, Can you talk us through about the the impact of this rollout and and why is it needed? Why is strong customer authentication needed?
2: Yeah, thanks. I mean, it's been something that's been on the radar for a long time, as you say. And... You know, we've seen obviously a huge increase in card not present fraud. So really, this was um, to introduced to really uh, impact the huge volumes of um, fraud that we see when people are using cards. I think in the UK, something like 450 million pounds in 2020 um, in card not present fraud. And that's obviously increased during the um, pandemic. So SEA was, uh, is needed really to paper over the cracks that exist in this kind of car payment methodology, which wasn't really designed for online payments, right? It was designed in, you know, 50 years ago because someone forgot their wallet in America um, and no one really thought about the impact of uh, huge volumes of e-commerce transactions. So it's really needed. It's very important. But as we've seen, uh, by introducing this extra factor of authentication for almost all payments rather than just, you know, ones that are deemed high risk, that's going to put a lot of grit in the wheels in terms of online transactions for card payments in particular. Um, we've seen actually the impact of this already happening to some extent. Uh, Europe already had to go through a full SCA rollout already and... The figures we saw um, from a consultancy, CMSPI, suggested it could impact conversion by up to 30% from what they saw initially in Europe. And I think from some of those uh, data points you've seen from Barclays, from Adyen and, and others, uh, not only is it impacting that conversion, but also some retailers just haven't even bothered uh, completing the implementation yet, which is going to cause more problems.
0: Yeah. I mean, Roger, I'm going to stick with you because you, you're at TrueLayer You're in the open banking space, right? Like, will this potentially mark, you know, maybe a, a window of opportunity for open banking? Yeah, I think
2: what's interesting about the open banking payments, I mean, your listeners probably understand this better than, better than most anyway, is because it's a modern way of paying online, it already includes SCA as the authentication step, right? So there isn't this concept of kind of you do the, the card processing step, and then you add on SCA, right? When you do uh, open banking uh, payment, essentially all you're doing is just authenticating the payment with your bank, which is the SCA step. So uh, the comparison we'd normally make is, you know, an open banking payment would take sort of five to six steps. Typically now card payments with SCA included is around 10 or 11 steps. So it, you know, it was arguably slicker before, and now, you know, it's much, much easier to pay with open banking and that kind of security is built in from the get go. So we do think actually it is going to be a window where people were once again considering why are we still kind of fully wedded to this card payments and actually could there be a better way of doing this.
0: I wonder, yeah, because I, my immediate thought was, you know, if, if cards become cumbersome, um, you know, open banking is going to be, is really going to take over. And I want, I, I wonder how, you know, if, if we could get into the brains of, of the CEOs and, and leaders at Visa and MasterCard, what they're thinking right now, uh, regarding this. But Jimmy, I'm going to come to you. Um, so will SCA have an impact, a significant impact on fraud prevention? Um, and why is this coming to effect now? Why, why do you think this is happening now?
3: Yeah, so just to layer on from my perspective, uh, last year uh, the UK government announced that online fraud had reached uh, epidemic levels and was now classified as highest security risk. That's, you know, to Roger's point about CMP uh, fraud levels, year on year, just rise and rise and rise. Um, and this is, you know, the you know s- s- stuff has to be done about it. 3D Secure was introduced in and has, has had multiple iterations, now we're on to the next step with uh, SCA, of course. Um, so back, back to the question around, uh, you know, like the why, I think the why is clear. I think on terms of outlook for fraud um, levels, hey, listen, if you're going to drop stuff by 30% overall volume, you're going to have lower fraud <laughs> as well. So there's a, there's a crap side to that message, obviously. <laughs> um, but, the rea- but the reality is this. Fraudsters are... Are human they're, they're us right um, and the point of human creativity is to think of things get around things uh, up down to the side of and we've seen it time and time again when new technology is mass introduced fraud just moves to a different vector and that's yeah that's just the way of uh, fraudsters and the cat and mouse game
0: Definitely. Uh, I love I love how you said fraudsters are me and you and I was like, not me, sir. But um, <laughs> fair enough. Sim, can you can you speak to the delay? Like, you know, why is this taken so damn long to happen in, in the UK?
1: Yeah, definitely. So the UK's FCA had originally delayed the introduction of SCA enforcement by about six months from last September in 2021 till now. And they said it was to ensure minimal disruption to merchants and consumers. But now they expect full compliance. But look, the deadline for compliance was initially set at, I think, 14 March 2021. And it's already been extended twice. Um, partly because of COVID, but partly because of retail industry bodies like the British Retail Consortium um, and their concerns about industry readiness. So I think, honestly, it's going on for some time. They've already been granted two delays. Um, There's more than enough time for this to have been properly implemented. So I feel like now is the time and to stick with it.
2: Yeah, I almost wonder if they've created a rod for their own back in a way by delaying it once for six months, then once again for another six months, because some of the merchants I speak to almost said, well, we'll have another six months as well, right? Like It was almost like the boy who cried wolf, and it felt like maybe we'll never have to do it, right? So I think that's why you're seeing some slowness of uptake as well.
1: So does anyone think that this is similar to the rollout of open banking in terms of the delays being granted and readiness levels? So I think, it, I think it is
2: just because whenever you're dealing with a large, complex system or, you know, in open banking terms, large, complex banks, um, it always takes longer than you think. And I think you're actually seeing that today slightly when uh, you look at uh, the rollout of VRP sweeping, which your audience might know about. So this idea of open banking extending to kind of moving money between accounts, which the big banks have to do by the end of Q2, um, it's always hard for the to get these people to move um to move quickly. And so I do think um it's always the case that people are going to struggle slightly um with doing this, but I do think at some point you've got to rip the rip the sticking plaster off and just say, Okay, this is the real deadline and we're really doing it, which uh I think is important. I mean, I'm a Barclay card customer as well, and you know, I even I got an email from them on Saturday saying uh, just as a customer, obviously, because I work in open banking, saying, "By the way, some retailers won't be ready for this, so your card will stop working on their sites." Like, they they know that this is a problem. It's it's uh, it's quite interesting.
0: Couldn't, like, I, I do see the parallels, definitely. But that, that's that's bound to happen with any like directive or like like sweeping change. Uh, especially in an industry that is like so fragmented and like served by, you know, retailers are using a hodgepodge of different services to actually accept and, and, and execute payments. Um, but like, you know, who, who's out there right now making this easy for people to actually do? Does anyone on the panel, has anyone seen any, any companies that are, uh, or bass companies potentially that are, that are helping their, their merchants, um, do this a lot easier?
3: I think uh, one of the biggest biggest kind of uh kind of uh fintech sectors that's kind of boomed up in the last twenty-four months is this orchestration layer, right? And it's precisely to deal with complexities like um SCA uh, getting rolled out. But I mean to revisit that point before, I, I I agree completely. It's uh it's very much a chicken and egg again on this. And that's that's what you we've got that hard deadline on Monday, which is good. But until that passes, I think there'll be an exponential rise in merchants uh, jumping on that afterwards. But I think everyone's just waiting and holding, waiting and holding, uh, just in case.
2: Yeah, and it, it's funny It's funny because, you know, we're speaking, we've are speaking, we been speaking to lots of different merchants about SEA for months. Um, and for some of them, ironically, they're almost sort of saying, well, we want to do open banking, but we have to kind of fix SEA as a problem, right, first. But... Um, you know, as we discussed, actually, you could make your consumer experience better just by focusing on open banking. But it's, you know, there's always lots to do um, within the within the payments parts of these organizations. And they tend to be, you know, fairly conservative, because it's how you're, you're actually receiving the money. But um, I think this is a big opportunity for people to suddenly to think a little bit about, is there a better way of doing this, right? It feels like you're making people's lives quite painful now to take pay- payments. Maybe there's a better way.
0: I hope so. I guess we'll, have, we'll just have to wait and see uh, with this rollout. But uh, on to the next story. Um, we could go on about uh, payments forever. Let's talk about the Nordic banking uh, scene. So Nordic neobank Lunar raises $77 million, reaching a $2 billion valuation. And they're also launching a crypto platform. So Lunar raised $70 million um over, uh, uh, you know, bringing their, their post-money valuation to $2 billion. Um, and along with that news, you know, they have also said that they're going to be launching a crypto trading platform, as well as a B2B play- payments platform for SME customers. So Lunar has a full banking license and offers checking and deposit accounts, um, loans for and other credit services like Buy Now Pay Later, uh, stock fund and ETF investing for customers. And they also do have business accounts, which, which include loans and financial management for SMEs. Um, so it's pretty much like a neobank that is, that looks, smells, sounds like a neobank, right? But they're also doing this crazy crypto thing. Um, so the latest investment has, is an extension to the company's series D round, uh, which had a first close of 210 million euro in July of last year. So the latest round has also, also has a superstar in it. So Will Ferrell was cut in on the deal and he's going to be starring in a marketing campaign for the startup. What? <laughs> so first of all, Will Ferrell aside, um, Sim, can you can you tell us a little, little bit about, the, you know, the, the Nordic market and challenges around like banking and, and fintech and and, you know, why this is such a huge, huge story?
1: Yeah, for sure. So it's not surprising that challengers wouldn't want to, to bother with the Nordics. You know, it's a small, small market for most players to bother with but when you have that and combine the fact that you know, incumbents in the region have long been considered strong and stable, you know they offer really good digital experiences. But what's been happening in recent years is that confidence in Nordic banks has taken a tumble because of the series of money laundering scandals that's happened. And so it's easy to see why people may have lost confidence in the Nordic incumbents. But then on top of that, you have both global and local disruptors who are attacking the entire banking value chain across you know, key product areas. And then they're really resolving the underlying customer problem and they're starting with digital first experiences. So essentially, they're really capturing the opportunity to do something different and better than the incumbents. So when you have that kind of strong customer focus to address these underlying issues, along with a lower cost base and high speed to market, it makes them win. But, you know, it's not easy to enter the market, you know, not you know, they don't have to just deal with incumbents and other startups, but they also have to navigate a complicated web of regulations. You know, getting a banking license is a hell of a process, and some regulators don't even know what to do with challenges. They don't even actually probably have that regulation in the first place to deal with companies that are considered challenges. And often you hear stories of banks helping regulators actually define what a challenger bank segment looks like and negotiating things on how to, to use things like the cloud. So I think it's not surprising that challenger banks don't really bother with the Nordics. And this is why this is huge, because Lunar are winning it and absolutely killing it. Jimmy,
0: you look like you have something to say. Please go ahead.
3: Oh, I was, uh, I, was uh, I think, remarking on um, kind of, uh, you can almost take every single uh, kind of on-trend uh, tech thing, NFTs, cryptos, and uh, what's amazing about Lunar is they represent it all, right? <laughs> so so I, I get the kind of Val and... Uh, uh, their prop there and I, I just had a comment on the nordics as well um I, I think for like we're fortunate as a start we work with mainly fintech uh, so kind of neobanks challenger banks so we get like a whole view from you know the ones over in latam the ones over in asia and of course our european ones and i, I think what's amazing is um these guys are all like uh you know double unicorn status plus uh and there's tons and tons of investment going into them. I think this is uh this is a really interesting time for the neo banks. It's um it as we all know in tech it's often zero sum. There's a winner takes all and uh gosh just the amount of uh kind of challenger neo banks out there it's going to be uh, a a very interesting 12 months ahead I think.
0: Roger, what, what were your thoughts when you read this story specifically regarding, you know, the the raise and and even the crypto news?
3: Yeah,
2: it's interesting, isn't it? I think you can. It shows that you can be a, a big fish in a, in a small in a small pond to some extent. And I think, you know, there are you know, in terms of just raw number of people in the Nordics, it's not it's not high. But of course, by entering that market and then owning it from the neobank state um, point of view, then you actually get quite a big addressable market. And I was interested that you know they're looking at some of this B two B payment space. There's a lot of SMEs in Sweden and Denmark. Denmark is like Um, uh, you know, 99% of firms in Denmark are SMEs. So I think there's like, there could be a lot of interesting traction in this space. And, you know, we work with, um, uh, you know, one of our kind of first ever big anchor clients, if you like, is Revolut. But, you know, they've kind of led the way to some extent by combining that kind of neo banking services with, uh, trading and now crypto. And I feel like every neobank needs to be thinking about what they're doing in, tri- in crypto as a kind of a way to get people into the application. It's quite an exciting, uh, an exciting time. And yeah, we're working with a number of those different, uh, different players because, um, both in terms of like understanding who's adding funds to wallets, uh, and also providing the rails as well. So it's quite an exciting time for neobanks and crypto
3: and um, talk about this uh, fast fast kind of hypergrowth for all of these guys as well and um, the interesting kind of thing from our side is um even though we help with um uh, tech that helps uh fraud detect um the actual kind of use case for us for most of these new banks is all centered around uh improving pass rates because for them it's very much that uh, acquisition uh you know, and, it, and aggressive acquisition clearly of uh, new accounts so so that's our main touch point with them is actually about Literally letting in more good customers become new customers, say of Lunar, for instance, uh, and then stopping the bad guys uh, automatically. So it becomes more of a yeah an acquisition kind of play rather than say uh, fraud detection.
2: That's interesting. So it's less less on the negative side. It's more about how do we make the pipe as wide as possible.
3: Yeah, and and you know the the economics of fraud are always um, especially on the card side, which we're talking about something slightly different now, um, but. It, it's always, um, yeah, it's a clear cut business case of fraud losses versus a tech invested in. There's other stuff to bear in mind, like brand and protecting your customer, etc. Um, but really, the thing that moves the needle for uh, pretty much most of our fintech that uh, work with us, we're fortunate to work with, is um, on the sign up form uh, for new account opening is literally allowing more good stuff through uh, but exactly that Roger yeah it's uh, it's a different it's a different focus and that moves the needle right that's i think what gets uh, all of us we're all we're all uh, tech here it uh, gets all of our, our juices going when we're talking about how to increase acquisition and how to how to take more safely um so yeah d- a different angle indeed
0: Um. so let's look at the nordic uh you know the nordic Market a little bit closer with regards to crypto specifically. Um, so, you know, there's limited crypto capabilities in that market because a lot of Nordic banks do not want to transact with international crypto platforms, uh, mostly because, you know, they lack regulation for, for tracking transactions. And there's really no way to insure against uh, fraud or, or illegal activity. Um, so, this presents an opportunity to lunars. Like most. Most times I see news about like someone tacking on the word crypto to their you know pitch decks or whatever it's usually just like a, a to bump the share price or or you know add an extra zero to the the valuation um, but I think these guys actually have come at it with a, with a really thoughtful lens and in the sense that they've taken on risk because if you look at the market contextually so they've bring people on their platform to trade um, and also you know providing an on-ramp into crypto. Uh, you know, I think I think is a quite a savvy move. Um, well, what did you think when you heard this story, specifically regarding the the creation of, of a pretty t- table stakesy product, which is just a crypto exchange?
2: Yeah, I think everyone is struggling with you know uh, the move into uh, going from crypto being the f- fully wild west to like a core part of the financial system. So that fear on ramp is something that we spend a lot of time thinking about because it's about how do you work with typically regulated exchanges, but in a way that allows people to move easily between, you know, fiat money, regardless of the currency, back into crypto and back out again. Um, and that's normally where we're, we're involved. I think there are opportunities there, which is quite interesting, where uh, perhaps goes against the spirit of kind of Web3 slightly, but makes it more easy is if we really, really know people own a bank account, you know, using open banking or whatever, like data, so you can say, I, look, Roger D.F. provably owns that account and he's put money into the crypto exchange. And then I can also check to see it's also him that takes the money out at the end. That actually makes regulators much happier about the process. So um, I think there's a move in general to try and make these, this, uh, this, you know, without kind of defeating the purpose of crypto in the first place, making it a bit more controlled. And it feels like there is a gap in that Nordic market at the moment, uh, because perhaps the incumbents have been a bit slower or getting more nervous about crypto in general.
3: Yeah, I was, I was going to uh, comment on the table stakes kind of comment there. It, it is, but it's also reflection of, you know, look at all, all the booming kind of fractional share uh, uh, platforms as well, right? Um, because that's the reality now. Um, <laughs> some asset prices uh, um, uh, for stocks have just got to a level where it's not practical for Gen Z to go ahead and uh, pick up a, 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 I don't know, 10 or 100 block share. Uh, they need to own like a little fractional bit. And that's what these represent, these crypto platforms, is that uh, market latent need for fractional ownership. Um, you know, Spend any time on Reddit under these forums and you know, it, it, these things blow up. It, and it's a mix of, it's really interesting for me, it's a mix of kind of social community, um. you know, a globalized world, be able to jump on trends and make instant decisions. And it genuinely moves the needle on price. We know this from, you know, the, the roller rollercoaster uh, kind of up and downs we've had, uh, you know, in the last kind of six to 12 months. Um, And I think Lunar, yeah, they, they look like they're doing an awesome job of it. It looks cool. um, And I see the need for it.
0: All right. On that note, let's, uh, let's, we could re- I could really go on and on about crypto, to be honest, but let's, let's take a pause. Uh, while you hear from our sponsors, we'll be back shortly.
2: Here at 11FS, we're still working hard to build the next generation of financial services, and our team is growing quickly. So we're looking for a bunch of new 11s to join us. If you or somebody you know are up for a challenge and fancy working for one of Flex's most flexible companies, come check out our open roles. We have roles in growth, product, sales, talent, and more. You'll find all the details at 11fs.com forward slash careers. That's 11fs.com forward slash careers.
0: Welcome back and let's get into our next story. So eBay and Klarna partner to bring flexible payments options to Germany. So eBay is partnering with Klarna to bring new flexible payment options to the to German shoppers. The two new Klarna payment options are being added to eBay.de, uh, will supplement the existing payment methods, which include Klarna's pay now service. Customers will now also be able to access pay later invoice and financing to giving them several options to choose from uh, on every purchase whether that's paying immediately or at a later time. The rollout of both options is being phased in, starting with select sellers over the coming weeks and following with a wider rollout later this year. Um I feel like we need to take a shot every time I hear Klarna or buy now, pay later. Like I'm, I like this news is insane. Obviously there's, there's so much happening in this space. Um, Sim, can you talk to like Klarna? Like again, I'm inundated with Klarna and buy now pay later. What's what's going on? What's this boom all about? What's happening in Europe?
1: There's definitely um, a spree that Klarna is on for international expansion. You know, this partnership marks the latest in a series of ventures for the Swedish fintech as it expands across Europe and it's only continuing to grow. So Klarna's payment methods as individual products are currently available in over 18 European markets. And just two weeks ago, we heard of, um, in the news, their soaring losses driven by this expansion to fresh markets. And just to give a few details on that, so in the UK, they launched a card a couple of months ago, um, which will allow customers to delay their payments when used at high street shops. And this is huge because previously it only offered buy now, pay later products for online customers in the UK. And this is all following a successful launch in Germany and Sweden. And again, in the, the UK, they're launching a new rewards feature called Missions, which allow shoppers to earn points each time they pay immediately or make a payment on time. And this, again, is launching in nine new markets including France and Canada, and it's going to hit the UK in springtime. So, you know, as consumers move away um, from traditional payments to alternatives across the world, these alternatives meet their expectations and Klan is just winning in this sense. It shows that they're not only expanding and being dominant in doing so, but they're also enhancing the shopping experience while they're doing that. So it's huge.
3: It'll be interesting to see how this uh, hits uh, Germany uh, as well. Uh, as a as a market, right? It's the, the one uh, outlier in Europe where the, the cards penetration was relatively low compared to their ELVs and so forth, uh, the Visons. So I'll be really interested to see uh, this. And, and for me, it was always understanding that there was something almost cultural in uh you know it, you know with with uh, consumers there where there was a real distrust of credit and just an auto default to pay with the money you have so uh, it'd be fascinating to see how how uh, how this rolls out
0: yeah Germans notoriously like cash users right and also like notoriously like you said of like super averse to credit, um. Like, uh, but I'm curious, like, why Germany? You know, Germany's not even their biggest market. Um, and they typically, you know, they, they typically like to trial things in their home market of Sweden. Um, so is Germany becoming some kind of stepping stone for the rest of Europe? Um, Roger at TrueLayer, I know you guys are you know building partnerships with banks and and um you know third party providers as as well, uh, third party services. Uh, what's what's in the water in Germany? What's going on?
2: Yeah, it's an it's an interesting one. I think Jimmy kind of hits the nail on the head like Germany is a massive market obviously in terms of the number of consumers in terms of the revenues but sort of strangely inverted compared to certainly the UK or even somewhere like France in terms of credit card and debit card penetration it's always been bank-centric right and uh, which is good for people like Trulair you know focused on bank payments Um, I think it's interest and there's also a high degree of trust as well so you notice here that although there isn't credit there is this concept of paying by invoice right so in that you know even on amazon in germany you can order a product get it delivered and then they'll send you an invoice and then you can pay after that so we'd in the uk market would almost see that as a as a credit but they would just see that as normal business like you just pay by invoice even as a consumer and i noticed that's what the offering here in Plana is it's fitting into that German kind of cultural model. Also, recall that Klarna owns Sofort, so Sofort is a bank payment method already. So, I wonder whether that's also leading them to think about how to launch different sorts of partnerships in Germany, leveraging their Sofort relationship as well. Do
0: you think the future of Klarna um, really is partnerships uh, and, and deep deep partnerships with, with various, uh, you know, checkout type uh, retailers and stuff? Because I, that that seems to be their business model of growth. Like they're going just straight for you know large payments company, large um, retail companies like like eBay. Which fun fact? Formerly a subsidiary of uh, PayPal was formerly a subsidiary of eBay, which spun out in twenty fourteen to go independent. So like this is crazy. It's kind of like you know PayPal, Klarna, pitted against each other. Um, but you know is is this? Do you, do you see this as Klarna's growth? Um, the, the groove that they've found to grow just m- mega partnerships open question to any, anyone
2: i mean i think they have to do you know to continue the, the the pace of growth that they need to need to you know justify valuation and justify what they're doing then they need to do everything right they need to be signing up every small merchant uh in the world uh, on buy now pay later but they also need these mega partnerships as well i think the challenge is you know they've done extremely well, obviously, in the European market, but you see all these other competitors, particularly from the US, coming into the buy now, pay later um, space as well. And I do also wonder whether in a new higher inflation environment where interest rates rise, then suddenly offering kind of free finance for everything, becomes actually quite expensive as well. So, and maybe they have to look to different revenue streams outside of the core one. Where you know, it's very often it's easy to offer, you know, free finance to consumers where interest rates are half a percent. Interest rates are seven percent. That's going to be very difficult.
3: Yeah, that 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 space um, obviously is a uh, is is crazy congested now, right? So it doesn't surprise me to see kind of these big moves from uh, Klarna going into different uh, revenue opportunities. And I'm with Roger, like, at that kind of scale, like they have to be doing everything, (laughs) you know, the bread and butter plus these kind of um, uh, uh, slightly left field uh, kind of moves there um but yeah alone the, the their sector is so crowded and 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 they're and they're all reportedly doing very well right so they must be addressing market needs as well. yeah. uh, you know their 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 customer acquisition numbers are you know they're, they're out there
0: they're they're on a tear you know through throughout europe you know they're recently announced a uh, a rewards program in the UK, which will allow shoppers to earn points on every time they pay with Klarna. Um, also reportedly working on a new funding round that could see their price reach $60 billion. Insane. So the company just, it you know, has, just for context, has raised $639 million to be valued at $45.6 billion just last June. Um, so this kind of growth, this velocity is not a surprise. Um, and, and with that, uh, Speaking of buy now, pay later, 11FS Pulse will be releasing a brand new home screen episode this week covering everything you need to know about the payment method that's fast becoming mainstream. Find it on the 11FS YouTube channel. Alright, let's move on to the next story. So Revolut is given a thumbs up by the Ukrainian Deputy Prime Minister for helping refugees open accounts. So Revolut is making it easier for refugees escaping Ukraine to open Revolut accounts and waiving some FX transfer fees as well. A move that's been given a thumbs up by the Ukrainian Deputy Prime Minister. Refugees of any nationality fleeing from Ukraine will be able to set up accounts on the app without needing to meet any documentation demands like proof of right to reside in Europe. Once their account is set up, those fleeing Europe will be able to link any Ukrainian bank card with their Revolut card and can immediately Begin topping up their account in a variety of currencies. It is also waiving a number of FX transfer fees to ensure that th- no, there's no additional charges for individuals displaced by the invasion uh, when exchanging their Ukrainian currency to another currency. Um, this is this is such a heartwarming story. It's you know so nice. I think that um, uh, what else have we seen? Like of course, Revolut are are not the only ones out here doing things for the refugees um, coming out of Ukraine. Sim, what else have you seen happening in in the in the industry in fintech? How are people responding?
1: You're absolutely right. It's so heartwarming. And what's so heartwarming is that there's so many other things that are happening too to support Ukraine. So FinTechs for Ukraine um, is a fundraising effort that launched last week um, and it aims to encourage tech firms to raise as much money as possible to help support those victims. We also have the charitable giving app, Tukon, which has joined forces to raise urgent funds too. And even Wise last week, limited daily transfers to Russia, but now have suspended all money transfers into Russia. There's also companies like UpSwat, which has helped not only its employees, but also helping people out there in Ukraine. Um, you know, I think we've spoken about on previous shows that both Bunk and Zopa are offering relocation visas to Ukrainian citizens. So I, I don't know, I'm just overwhelmed in the best way to see all the support that's gone out for Ukraine. Did anyone else have any, uh, Roger, what are your thoughts when you saw the story?
2: I mean, obviously, it's a great, it's a great story. And I think. Um, uh, it, I, th- I thought it was quite interesting the fact that, um, you know, as well as the fundraising efforts that I think everyone is getting involved in, which is obviously really important, this idea of actually just making lives easier. So, dropping some of these documentation requirements and trying to make people be you able know, to set up quicker is actually probably as important as some of the other sort of charity donations. Like, how do you get people? um uh you know back on their feet as quickly as possible i think is a really interesting take by Revolut, and i really applaud what they're doing
3: jimmy um thoughts yeah um i think with have uh you know with i think looking at kind of how they're going to be doing that is interesting from a fraud and risk point of view <laughs> when you drop some of those idv and kyc and aml checks <laughs> then uh Uh, I I would raise question marks at um, how how that might actually look because the reality is it's not going to be the Ukrainians that They will benefit from it, but the people that will also take advantage are going to be uh, those crafty uh, fraudsters out there who are uh, definitely going to be opening up accounts and changing their VPN to a Ukrainian one, I'm sure, or a UK one.
0: Yeah, when I saw that part of the story, I was like, hmm, how are they assessing risk around that like how i mean i'm curious i you know do they do you have to send a photo of yourself like literally crossing the border like i don't know like um so definitely uh, yeah. Uh, good luck to them. I think Revolut must have a robust uh, thin crime team, so I'm sure they'll be fine. But uh just Vlad Yatsenko, the co-founder and CTO of Revolut, is actually Ukrainian-born, and he, he said, you know, they felt it was imperative to help those most affected by providing a service that gives them easy, quick access to their money. So bank transfers are often slow and expensive, and we hope that this Revolut initiative provides a simpler alternative. I think, you know, it's really great that we're seeing, you know, Fintech companies in general step up and and support people uh, people who are going through the worst time of their lives, really. Um. So uh, you know, Revolut has also said that more than ten million euros has been raised by its customers, uh, and the neobank through a charity appeal to help those impacted by Russia's Russia's inv- invasion of Ukraine. Um. So it's just you know, there's there's a lot of stories like this that are, that keep popping up, and and it, I I'm I'm really it's it's really quite heartwarming to see. Um, anyone else have any thoughts before we move on to the next story?
2: Yeah, I was just going to say, I think the one thing that the, you know, the fact that, you know, in your Monzo app, Revolut app, wherever you wherever you go now, the fact that if you reduce friction in anything, and this is about, you know, growth hacking mindset and all this great stuff, you reduce friction in anything, then you, more, you get more success. But if you reduce friction in charitable giving, you get more charitable giving as well, which I think is like the, Using this kind of growth hacking mindset, you know, pop-ups within, I saw this in my Monzo account this morning, like Give to Ukraine, and you can just click and give straight away. You know, this is kind of growth hacking for good, if you like, and I'm glad to see the fintechs doing some of this as well.
0: All right, let's move on to uh, the next segment, which is, uh, stories we didn't have time to cover. So for this part of the show, we quickly round up some of the, some other stories from this week that we didn't really have much time to cover
1: in the main show, but these still do deserve a shout out. So Sim, do you want to get us started? Yes, of course. So SoftBank announced an uncapped evergreen fund made explicitly to Black, Latinx, and Native American entrepreneurs within the US. Now, the commitment is a continuation of SoftBank's $100 million opportunity growth fund for underrepresented founders, which first launched in June 2020 in the wake of increased racial justice. Um, The effort has now invested in its entirety across 70 companies. So about 55% of the initial portfolio companies are Black-founded, 40% are Latinx-founded, and 5% are both Black and Latinx-founded. And this is really, really nice and heartwarming to see. You know, just over four months ago, SoftBank committed $3 billion more in capital to Latin American companies. And so they're really trying to advance diversity in technology and entrepreneurship by providing founders, you know, across a spectrum of underrepresented backgrounds with the capitals and network they need to scale their business. And not just this, you know, in addition to supporting European founders, the 2022 edition of the Vision Fund Emerge, that's the name of the fund, they're going to extend it to applicants from underrepresented communities in a wider range of geographies, taking the programme to new jurisdictions for the first time. You know, it's great, but there are still... Things to, to sort out. You know, the portfolio weighs heavily towards men. So, only thirteen percent of companies in the SoftBank opportunity portfolio are founded by women of color, which is again good, higher than national rates, but still far from equal.
3: Yeah, <clears throat> I think it's a fast. I think that's really fascinating. Uh, just in Austin, actually, um, uh, the a couple of days ago, I was at a kind of a, a post show party, and I was speaking away to an American VC uh, runs um, runs a uh, kind of an incubator in Austin. And We were talking around this uh, diversity and this kind of uh, kind of you know very much this move to and SoftBank News kind of hit as part of that as well, um, and we were actually talking about to your stat unfortunately where thirteen percent is the case so you know the the, the rest of <laughs> the rest of it eighty seven percent is none. but the but the reality is um, we were talking about this. Um, like we are building and we're scaling. We're 190 fraud fighters just now. And we're always trying to over-optimize for diversity now, which is which is kind of weird. But at the end of the day, like, I think we're just trying to find amazing brains to help our mission, <laughs> and it doesn't really matter. Um, but the, we were talking about the actual challenge of fulfilling diversity quotas, um, of trying to do our best to, to do that because it's just great business, obviously. Um, but the, the, it always boils down to um, I think a more, more simple dynamic that until we kind of saw our education where we're getting enough engineers trained up from, you know, uh, you know, kind of, you know, kind of uh, underrepresented areas, that's the issue we're trying to solve for is more there because at the moment the pool's just too, too small. And we're, we're, we're like, you know, Roger's team, we're trying to hire everybody <laughs> as much as we can just now. And we, you know, so it's not, it's, there's no argument there.
0: Yeah, we could honestly, I could go on and on about, about this specific piece of the industry. Cause yeah, it's he- heavy underrepresentation from, um, you know, minority groups, but let's move on to the next story. So, um, the FCA searches for a head of new crypto department. Um, so the new department. Head will be accountable for leading the FCA's approach to regulatory interventions within the crypt- within crypto firms in the UK and supervising complex business models of registered firms and dealing with unregistered crypto asset businesses that may be involved in scams and frauds. Earlier this month, the regulator revealed that it opened over 300 cases related to crypto firms in a six-month period last year and had, has 50 live investigations, inclu- including criminal probes, uh, into companies in the sector. The new department head will be expected to build a team capable of developing a data strategy and shaping the FCA's response to new trends and Im- emerging risks in line with government policy. The FCA, I, you know, I'm probably one of the FCA's biggest stands, like one of the most innovative Regulatory bodies, you know, in, in, in the world, I think. Um, so uh, the fact that, that, you know, they, they found a new head of department or they, they, they're looking for a head of department for their crypto arm is, is genius. And I think it's going to keep them abreast of, of any innovation that's happening. You know, like we, we heard about the U.S., the executive order that, that was, uh, from last week from Biden. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of, there's growing crypto, uh, cautiousness, but also um, curiousness that's coming from, from government bodies and and, and uh, regulatory bodies all around the world. So this is really exciting.
1: Um, Sim? Yes. And the other story today is that Citizen Advice found that one in 12 people turned to buy now, pay later to cover basic costs like food and toiletries. Young people, those in debt and those claiming universal credit said they are at least twice as likely to have used buy now, pay later for essentials compared to the general population. And This is concerning. You know, the fact that people are turning to buy now, pay later for their groceries is really hammering home the need for industry regulation, you know, as living costs spiral and combine that with inflation. There's a fear that more people in desperate situations will turn to this, you know, unregulated form of credit as the answer. And I think it's just yet another call for local regulators to kind of speed up the scrutiny of the sector. Absolutely.
0: All right, let's bring everyone back uh, for our final story of the week. So, HSBC buys a virtual plot of land in the metaverse. HSBC has become the latest financial institution to venture into the metaverse, acquiring a virtual real estate <laughs> in the sandbox. Uh, so, HSBC intends to use this plot of land to engage and connect with sports, esports, And gaming enthusiasts, Uh, Suresh Balaji, the Chief Marketing Officer of Asia Pacific, HSBC, says that the Metaverse is how people will experience Web3 and the next generation of the Internet. Through our partnership with The Sandbox, we are making our foray into the Metaverse, allowing us to create innovative and brand experiences for new and existing customers. We are excited to be working with our sports partners and brand ambassadors to co-create experiences that are educational, inclusive, and accessible. So before we dive into a, a conversation about this, um, can we play a clip from uh, our colleague Mauricio Malgadi, our global leader of cryptocurrency here at Love and Fest, to, who gave us a little bit of insight on the story.
4: So this week we saw the announcement of HSBC to become the first global financial services provider to enter the sandbox, one of the new and exciting metaverses in the space. Um, It's no strange to the banks to be present on virtual spaces. They did so back at the time of the second life. But one thing that comes to mind when seeing metaverses that are based in blockchain hosting this incumbent participants such as HSBC is, does Web3 really need a centralized service provider in the space? meaning if it's all blockchain-based and blockchain being the transactional conduit of Web3, what's in there for the banks? Are they going to just open virtual branches so that people, quote-unquote, can go in and do their business? Well, they can rely on the blockchain to do payments, to do investments, to do lending and all all other forms of financial services. So it bears the question, so what's the role of incumbent participants of the financial services industry into the metaverse if the metaverse is based on blockchain.
0: That's great. Um, thoughts uh, from everyone when, when we first heard this story? Roger? Um, yeah,
2: I was, my thought was exactly like your commentator there. It feels a bit like um, Second Life and brands taking over real estate in Second Life. Um, I worry... It's you know a PR-led uh, initiative rather than um, uh, something that's something that's real. But that said, you know I don't think we're still at a space here with this metaverse concept where you know is it VR goggles? Is it some other thing? Is it a different space? Um, maybe we should be applauding them to at least be taking a step in this this direction. Although. Um, it may impact the the cool factor slightly if big banks are there when the whole venture here is meant to be around defi right rather than uh, the same old uh, players still still working in it so i don't think anyone knows is is the short answer here but uh, yeah be interested to see if something comes up i
0: mean i saw a tweet this morning um from someone named Maya Zahavi uh which made me chuckle basically uh they say if i don't want to walk into the bank IRL why would i want to do that in the metaverse um which you know definitely like it just hits all those points like sure cool i guess you have a bank branch in the metaverse like what am i going to you know i i don't know the only other bank that i know of that's in the metaverse is is j p morgan chase and that's um I think it's Mimi in the sense that, like Jamie Dimon, famous uh, CEO of, of of the bank. Uh, there's a massive like poster or like framed image of him on the wall in the building in the metaverse it's weird anyway <laughs> um jimmy <laughs> what, 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 are, what are your thoughts about banks wading into the into the metaverse
3: uh, i mean li- li- they've, they've, they've got to try things right i mean look at the banks that are turning into kind of cool working spaces <laughs> so um i think it's it's trying to stay relevant in a world that looks increasingly scary to core banking there <laughs> so so I, i'm with uh, the commentator it's literally the philosophical um opposite of what DeFi represents. <laughs> so, so for me, uh, I, I'm skeptical.
0: Sim, did, has this completely,
1: is the metaverse uncool now? <laughs> That's a big question. I think on glance, I don't think it's uncool in that sense. I, I mean, I do agree um, that they're trying to stay relevant in this space without necessarily having a pure purpose for doing so. But I think, I don't think it ruins the cool factor. I think it might even add to the benefits of Web3, you know, so just to to show other people that it's not just like fintechs and startups that are in the Web3, because I think, you know, the more people, the merrier, and it's. I think it's better compared to having just one certain type of company, like a startup, on the Web three. So, I'm not saying it legitimizes it in any way, but I'm just saying it might add to the appeal for some people if they see, you know, a big, long-standing institution like a bank entering the Web three. That this is a shift, a proper shift.
0: I guess yeah, you're right. It's it's the marking of mainstream. This is mainstream now. But yeah, Jimmy.
3: Yeah, it's. Uh, I think it's a. It's starting to be the a good sign of. Um, Uh, is it Jeffrey Moore uh, the crossing the chasm so you know the early adopters this is kind of endorsement that hey this is legit so when a big bank comes in so there's an upside as well Um, I I take this as all uh, excellent for being bullish on crypto as far as I'm concerned a proxy for it all
0: This is not financial advice, but yes, uh, Jimmy's <laughs> bullish on crypto. Um, I, I guess I'll just wrap by saying that, like, you know, there's so many, my parents still don't fully understand what I do for a living and fintech and, my, you know, and I do my my very best to explain and to explain this, uh, you know, crypto and that to them. But the one thing I, I can, I refuse to engage uh, with anyone who is, like because I don't understand it for myself, is real estate in the metaverse. I'm just, I do not understand it. And it makes absolutely no sense to me. (laughs) So, um, if anyone listeners out there want to like DM me and like explain to me (laughs) the importance of like land in the metaverse, please do. Um, anyway, (laughs) that wraps up this week's show. Um, thank you so much for our guests who've come on today. Can you tell people where we can find out more about you, Roger? Uh,
2: yeah, sure. So Trulia, obviously, just look, look for our website um, and probably best to reach me on things like uh, LinkedIn. I'm always on there if you want to reach me on that or um, uh, drop me an email and roger at trulia.com.
1: Brilliant, Sim. You can find me on LinkedIn or at sim.riat11fs.com. Thank you. Jimmy?
3: and then uh, linkedin for myself and then sayon.io and um, so we've tried to make uh, fraud fighting as easy as possible so you can try for free see transparent pricing and full documentation public uh, api references available there
0: and as for me, you can find me at 11FS.com. I'm also on Twitter at notguera. Um, Yep, accepting DMs from people explaining the metaverse to me. Thank you. Uh, you can join in uh, to the conversation on social media or email podcast at 11FS.com. Thank you so much for listening and goodbye.